Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, please. I replaced my garage door opener this week. That was this week's project. As we, uh, I, I don't know if it was when we were going to church last week or going somewhere else, but we went to go and it was like, okay, this thing finally is not going to work anymore. Uh, better fix it before it just absolutely dies. So I got a new garage door opener, and you would not believe it. You only have to push the button once, and the door goes up, and you push it again, and it goes down. The old one would go, uh, uh, it was kind of like, faked you out, huh, faked you out. Before I did the install, I cleaned the garage so I'd have a nice empty table. I put all the parts out there. Um, I, I kept all the cardboard. I mean, I... You know, usually I just, first piece, just grab the first piece and start putting it up, you know. And uh, the new one looked like the old one, um, a lot of the mechanisms, so I thought, hey, I got this down. But no, I followed it direction, step by step by step by step. And I'm, I'm moving along, I've got the old one down, I'm getting the new one built and laid out. And, and I came to the tensioner spring. It's a little thing like that with bolts on the end and a little thing and a spring. And the directions say, now take it off and put it on and put this other bolt on. And, and I'm looking at the picture and I'm looking at my parts and I think, it doesn't look the same. It looks different. I thought, well, I just, and I tried it this way and I tried it that way. And I prayed several times. Believe me, I prayed. And after about a half an hour, I thought, you know, something is not right. And I went and looked around the papers that were there, and there was an addendum to the directions. And the addendum had a picture that looked exactly like the parts I was holding in my hand. I said, thank the Lord! My prayers have been answered, and I, I followed those directions, and there you go. I was in business, and not too long, and my garage door was going up and down like a champ. We are all following some directions in life. You have directions in your head, in your heart that you're following. They may be your own, they may be God's, they may be somebody else's. But as we move toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, now be careful about whose directions you're following. Because the directions you follow are going to lead to either that narrow gate or that broad gate, and you want to make sure you're getting the right directions. Let's read from Matthew chapter 7. Starting in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. He's talking there about the entrance into the Christian life, the entrance into the blessed life, which ultimately leads to heaven. And he says that many people go on the, the path that seems the best to them, but it leads to destruction. But the path that leads to heaven is a narrow path. And then verse 15, he moves right on to say, Now beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, 
and nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. It's interesting that Jesus only says one truth, but he speaks about it from several different ways to really get the point across. And the point that he's making is this. There are true prophets and there are false prophets, and you need to make sure which one you're following because the false prophets will not lead you where you hope to go, that is, to heaven and to a good and godly life now. Jesus says, in fact, that there are men and women working hard to get people to stay on the broad way. And he calls these people, he calls these people false prophets. Now, as with every piece of the scripture, it all fits together. And so there are a number of terms that are used synonymously in the scripture. Here, the term false prophet is used, and there's an emphasis on the source of the message. In other words, if you call yourself a prophet, you're essentially claiming to speak for God. And so a false prophet is one who claims to speak for God, but he does so falsely. He is not telling the truth. And then elsewhere in the New Testament, there is a reference to false brothers. And the emphasis there is on relationship. Now, we will uh, look at some scripture, and there's several places in the New Testament that it says there will be people from inside the Christian church who raise up and go sideways with God's message, and they are false brothers. In other words, they look like Christians, and they may talk like Christians for a while, but at some point they show that in reality, as Jesus says here, they never were a real good fruit tree. They were always a, a thistle bush, if you will. There is a reference to false teachers in the New Testament. The emphasis there is sort of on leadership or the leadership of teaching the Scripture in other words, they've gotten to a position of being considered a teacher, but in reality, they're not teaching God's truth. And then there's a reference to false apostles, and the emphasis there would be authority. The apostles, the 12 apostles, had um, a leadership authority over the body of Christ that nobody has ever had since. Jesus said to Peter, for instance, you are Peter, and I'm going to build my church on the message of the gospel, and whoever you speak that message to, then that's going to open the message up to them. That's the keys of the kingdom that were given to him. He had a leadership responsibility and authority responsibility to start the ministry of God. And so we see him in the book of Acts speaking the message of God to all kinds of groups of people. And when he's gone, in essence, the gospel is now open to everyone and, and there was a various kinds of uh, authority vested in the apostles. Well, there were men who came along and said, I'm an apostle. You need to follow me. You need to do what I'm saying. And the apostle Paul said, listen, there are some of them that are not true. They're false apostles. And then there is even a reference to false Christs. And in our day and age, it's a little bit hard for us to imagine that anybody in the Christian church would take someone seriously when they say, I am the Christ. You can put your hands down, bud, thanks. I, I'm the only one that gets to gesticulate and move around during church. <laughs> That's my privilege. Do you know who the last guy was who claimed to be Jesus Christ? Sung Young Moon. Do you remember him? 
guy, and they most notably you might have seen in the paper. They from time to time they'd have these huge weddings. Do you know what Sung Young Moon's message was? Jesus Christ failed. He failed because his mission was to marry and to begin the perfect race of people. And he failed, but I'm now going to succeed where he failed. Okay, well, he came and went, and there you go. False Christ. They claim Messiahship. We can hardly, we can hardly fathom that people would take that seriously, and yet, as with Sung Young Moon, many people did. And certainly in the time of Christ, they did as well. For the most part, these terms are used interchangeably. They have different emphases, but they're used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Here's the the, the first point that you really need to grasp. I've called it the reality of false prophets. Jesus says in Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets. Now, would Jesus give a warning where no warning was needed? No. So what does that mean to us? That means there will be false prophets. There will be false brothers. There will be false teachers. There will be false apostles. There will be false Christs. One of the things that has challenged the body of Christ in my generation is that our society, our American society, has preached the doctrine of tolerance so much that Christians take a similar posture and say, well, I, I, don't, I don't want to criticize anybody. And I don't want to be a critical, harsh person. But if our tolerance drives us not to think critically, that is, in a biblical way, about what people are teaching and saying, then we're going to swallow everything that is supposedly Christian, and the net effect will be harmful to us. There, it's interesting in the New Testament, because of how God caused his word to be revealed, it's given to us somewhat experientially. That is, here's Paul talking to the Ephesians, Here's Paul talking to the church of Corinth. And so we, ha- we see real-life experience interspersed with the, the Word of God in a way that shows us the progression of some things. The Apostle Paul went to Ephesus and spent three years there. He led people to Christ. He taught them God's Word. And by and large, when you read the book of Ephesians, you see a church that apparently was doing very well, as opposed to the church of Corinth, which had all kinds of challenges they needed to deal with. So he's there for three years, and, and their church not only became strong itself, but was instrumental in starting other churches. And he left Ephesus, and he went on about his work, and after about a year... A year of being gone, this is what he said to the elders of that church. Take heed to yourselves and to all of the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, false brethren, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. 
Now, the Apostle Paul is there for three years, he's gone for a year, and now he says, now listen, when I'm off the scene, you guys have to be careful and be watching, because heretics will come in, false teachers, false prophets, they will come in and hurt the flock. He calls them wolves, Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. And now we follow this progression a little bit farther to the, to the man who eventually became the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and it's Timothy. And Paul says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables or endless genealogies which cause, which cause disputes rather than godly edification. So here's the Apostle Paul, just a, uh, perhaps two or three years later, saying, now Timothy, you've got to work on the doctrine to make sure people don't go sideways. See, we look at this thing, they're listening to fables, they're listening to genealogy, somehow substituting that for doctrine. Yeah. Do you remember this quote? All that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. That was spoken essentially in regard to some of the terrible dictators like uh, Adolf Hitler. Hitler rose to power through what we'd call normal political channels. He got elected. But as he got more and more controlling and was more and more extreme, the question that's been asked afterwards is, where were the churches? Where were the people speaking against what he was doing? And one of the the quotes is this, All that's required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Nowhere is that more vital than in the body of Christ. If the body of Christ doesn't protect itself and keep the word of God pure, evil and more evil and more evil will come because that is what Satan wants to do. He wants to dilute the word of God. He wants to dilute the body of Christ. Jesus is warning us here that good men and women must be on guard against false teachers and false doctrine. Otherwise, evil will triumph. So the question naturally becomes now, how can we identify a false prophet? Go back to Matthew 7, please, verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. The whole rest of verse 17, 18, 19, 20 is, a, is, a, is an illustration. Jesus said, now if, if, I, uh, if, I, uh, if I planted a rose bush, and I thought it was a rose bush, and I planted it, when it grew up, what would be there would be roses. If something else comes out, I know that's not a rose bush. He uses the illustration of trees, of fruit trees, You plant a fruit tree, and uh, you wait for the fruit to come, and if you've done all of the farming things right, the fruit comes. If the fruit doesn't come, you say, something's wrong with the tree. And he's using this big illustration to say, look, here's a man, calls himself a teacher of God's word. And you're trying to say, is he a true teacher or a false teacher? He claims to speak for God. Is that true or is that false? 
He said, you need to look at what comes out. You need to look at the results. And those results fall in two lines. The first line is the message, the message of the false prophet. We know that these words are, are, these prophets are speaking God's truth in some form because Jesus calls them false prophets. But he also says they'll be in a disguise. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. What does that mean? What it means is they look harmless. They look harmless. Now, if the devil himself showed up here this morning, uh, the image that just came to your mind is red suit with horns and his pitchfork. Okay? Because <laughs> that's how we've drawn him in art. So if he showed up looking like that, you'd go, Ooh, that's the devil! Get rid of him! Okay? If he showed up with a sign around his neck that said, I am the devil, you'd say, get rid of him, he's the devil. If a person came to this platform with a sign on their neck that said, I am a false teacher, (laughs) the elders would be saying, is that a teaching prop or is that for real? If that's a teaching prop, we're going to let that go, but if you really mean that, you're out of here. Okay? But Jesus said, the false prophet is a wolf who shows up looking like a sheep. He looks harmless, but he's not harmless. The Apostle Paul put it this way, such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. All of the the satanic stuff, the you know the crazy movies the horror the, the the image of satan in a red suit with horns all of that is a diversion that satan has created because none of that is where he focuses his effort now i'm not saying that's all okay but what i'm saying is he's in sheep's clothing he looks good people say wow i never thought of it that way before There are men and women who appear to be speaking God's word. They appear to be bringing some light and righteousness to their listeners. But in reality, they are leading people to hell. How do they do that? I think they do that. I think they do that based on this warning at the very end of the Bible. Uh, It's no accident that this warning is only put in the book of Revelation, which is the last book written, and these are nearly the last verses in that book. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anybody adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this prophet, the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part in the book of life. From the holy city. There are two errors, two broad categories of error that false prophets, false teachers, whoever they might call themselves, two ways in which they attempt to take you to hell. And the first is by adding to the Bible. Okay? Now, I I am going to. What's the word? In my old age, I have tried to be more and more gracious. I know you're going to say, wow, I'm glad I wasn't there in the young age. Um, But there's sometimes when you need to take names. 
Okay? And this is one of those times. Okay? So we need to put some feet on these principles so you really understand them. Examples of adding to the Bible. Here's one. The Book of Mormon. Did you know that it's called... It says right on the cover, another testament of Jesus Christ. You've got that one. Now here's this one. Now they don't take away from the Bible. They add to the Bible. Now in our minds, they're substituting this one for that one. But in in their minds and in their words, they are not. They're saying, oh yeah, there's the Bible. And this is the one that really explains it to you. This is the addition to the Bible. Another one is the Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, lest I be accused of making things up, I will read from their Bible, the one called the New World Translation, in John chapter 1, and look at the smallest possible word they could add that absolutely corrupts the Bible, tran- the Bible text. <clears throat> now you see if you know which word was added. When you hear the added word, raise your hand. In the beginning, the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. There you go. Good for you. Boy, that makes me happy and proud. (laughs) There is no such thing as an indefinite article in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written. You can't say a. You couldn't be Canadian and speak Greek, I guess. (laughs) Sorry, brothers. Uh, You can say the, or you can say somebody like this but they added that and it's obvious why they add that because they don't they do not like the idea that Jesus Christ is the son of God who came in flesh and died for our sins a substitutionary death and so they've gotten rid of that here's one you're less familiar with because it's virtually gone now the 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 worldwide church of God this is a great read if you want to read about what a, a group that was full of false doctrine and actually corrected itself and the net effect of correcting itself is, is it disappears. Because who needs to go to it if it's not uh, a weird, strange thing? Um, and, and I would just say they added, they added, as I've put here, they added prophecies to the Bible. Here are some of their prophecies, published in their official document in 1934. Um, we may be absolutely certain that we are in, and for about three years, have been passing through this, world, this great worldwide tribulation. We are in the tribulation, according to him, in 1934. Of course, the Bible says it will only last for seven years, so something's wrong with that. 1939. You may know this year, World War II will be extended will be ended. World War II will be ended by Christ's return. Okay? All you have to have is one false prophet, one false prophecy to judge a prophet. That's all. The adding to the word of God, and there's many more. I just won't take your time for that. And there are countless groups that add to the Bible. And some of them are very well thought of by very large numbers of people. There's one that's based out of Rome that adds great volumes of truth that they claim are in addition to God's Word. Well, there are also people who take away from God's Word. And uh, one of those, I'll I'll reach back in history just a little bit, uh, not so far that I don't remember it uh, personally, but was a guy named Jim Jones. 
Jim Jones led a thousand people to drink poison Kool-Aid down in what used to be called Guyana. And uh, here's how he did it, in part. He had many things, many good things that he was doing to try to help people, but when he got up to taught, to teach, he's, uh, here is a, a testimony of somebody who said, in the first sermon I heard him preach, she recalls, Jones said there were errors in the Bible. And I thought to myself, you can't say that about the Bible. But he went on to quote so-called errors from the Bible. He took the Bible and threw it on the floor and shouted up at God, if there is a God in heaven, then strike me dead. Now, I don't have the list of his supposed errors, but by saying there's errors, he's essentially saying this doesn't belong, this doesn't belong, this doesn't belong. We're going to take things out. We're going to take things out. Going from uh, the ancient history of my teenage years all the way up to right now with a fellow named Brian McLaren who was part of a movement. Now, be careful. Be careful about what I'm about to say because I have no desire to criticize people who don't need criticizing. There was a movement about 12, 13 years ago that got started called the Emergent Church Movement. Now, the, the beginning of the Emergent Church Movement was good, be, in essence, because they said, we want church to be effective and alive and real and people's lives to be changed. Now, the problem was that their way to do that involved some things that probably were a little too extreme. Now, out of the emergent church movement, I want to say this first before I lay into Brian McLaren, out of the emergent church movement, there were some very good people who, who after a period of time, began to turn more toward, a, toward uh, what I would call a more central position in the scriptures and have become strong and, and godly and good churches. So don't, don't paint everybody with one brush that's part of today's lesson. You've got to look carefully. But a guy named Brian McLaren wrote something. I, I get this um, a, a journal called the Leadership Journal, which uh, is the premier journal for pastors. It's you know one of the few. And I got so worked up that I emailed the editor as soon as I read this, and I said, "Hey, if this is where you're headed, check my name off your list." And I actually got an email back from the editor himself said, no, 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 we're not, we're not headed that way. So here's what Brian McLaren wrote about homosexuality. Okay, He was a pastor at the time. He's not now, I don't believe. And uh, somebody in his church came and asked a question about homosexuality. And he said this, frankly, many of us don't know what we should think about homosexuality. Here's a man who's a pastor. He'd been a pastor for a while. He studied God's word. We don't know what we should think about homosexuality. We've heard all the sides, but no position has yet won our confidence so that we can say it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. He's quoting the scripture there. That alienates us both from the liberals and the conservatives who seem to know exactly what we should think. And here's his, here's his takeaway. Perhaps... We need a five-year moratorium on making pronouncements. In the meantime, we'll practice prayerful Christian dialogue, listening respectfully, disagreeing agreeably. When decisions need to be made, they'll be admittedly provisional. We'll keep our ears attuned to scholars in biblical studies, theology, ethics, psychology, genetics, 
sociology, and related fields. Then in five years, if we have clarity, we'll speak. If not, we'll set another five years for ongoing reflection. Okay? If you're here today and you're struggling with homosexual temptation, I want to say first and foremost, God loves you and I love you. One of my dear friends who used to live as a homosexual has been restored by God and serves God in a significant ministry today. And it was our privilege to have a small part in his life as God formed him. We love you, and we do not reject you, but we do embrace God's truth, which clearly says there is a right way and a wrong way to live out sexuality. And, and, and heterosexual promiscuity is just as bad as any other kind of promiscuity. God wants one man and one woman for life, starting with the marriage commitment like we had here yesterday. And it was an awesome time to bring two people together who had never been together physically and who are now getting ready to start their life together and to see the sweetness of their love. And if you cannot read God's word and understand what he says about sexuality, the problem is not with God's word. The problem is that you don't want to face the truth of God. The slippery slope that starts there leads in bad directions. I understand that your belief on sexuality won't send you to hell. I understand that. But the real issue is this. If you can change such a clear teaching of Scripture on sexuality, what will keep you from changing something else? Like one of the other fellows in the emergent church movement, Pastor Rob Bell, who wrote a book and essentially said, now, I think the classic understanding of hell is way off and really pushed very hard toward a direction of saying, there's no hell. Well, he's in good company there because there's a whole church called the Jehovah's Witness Church. And there are many other groups who say, oh, that's right, a good God would never send somebody to hell. Folks, hell is the real problem we have to deal with, and that's the real problem Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, 13, 14, and 15. He's saying there is a way that leads to heaven, there is a way that leads to hell, and there are people who want to lead you to hell because they don't want the Savior who is telling them they're sinners and they need to bow the knee and repent and say, I am a sinner. Jesus is the only Savior. And they need to accept His way and reject the the easy, broad, plain, natural, normal, quote-unquote way. You see, when a guy stands up and says, I I don't really think hell, I don't, you know, I don't think it's that, it's like we've thought about it. A lot of people go, oh, thank you. And they look at him and say, you are a true prophet of God. Now the jury's still out on that fella, okay? His jury's not out on his book and on the books written in response to it. Maybe... You know, maybe we've misread him. I don't know. If a so-called teacher of the Bible does not declare man's problem in life is sin against a holy God, 
The consequences of sin is punishment in hell. The solution to man's problem, the wonderful free gift that is available to us all, is Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. As I said last week, and I want to say it again, the way to heaven is narrow. The way to salvation is narrow. The way to a new life now is narrow, but freely available to all based on faith. God's requirement of all sinners is faith alone. And the godly life is lived by obedience to the Bible alone. If a so-called teacher of the Bible does not declare those truths plainly and squarely and regularly, then that is a false teacher. That is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the point Jesus is making about the trees is the same thing that we understand about the tulips we go visit the tulip fields my aren't those beautiful tulips do you know how the tulip growers make their money make their real money selling the bulbs do you know why they grow these beautiful fields of flowers so they know for certain what color will come out of a bulb and when that field comes up, if they, if they go out in the middle of that field, and, and you, know, you and I go walk along and go, isn't that marvelous? Look at that purple one in the midst of all those yellow ones. And they go down there and dig that thing up and throw it away. Because it's spurious. It's wrong. They don't want to contaminate them. Because when they sell those yellow bulbs, they sell those purple bulbs, they, people need to get what they're paying for. Jesus said... A teacher of God's word is a tree, and either he's a, a genuine tree producing genuine fruit that, that God describes, or else as you watch and pay attention, what's going to come out of his message is garbage. It's not going to be God's truth. And as hard as it is for us, when we see false doctrine come out of a teacher, we have got to distance ourselves from that teacher. There is also another way that we judge, another fruit that we judge in the life of the false prophet, and it is the, the, uh, the life that he lives. It's not just wrong doctrine, but it's life. And it starts here in 2 Peter 2. There were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Destructive heresy, that word heresy is a reference to false doctrine. Even even going to the length of denying the Lord who bought them. And this, of course, is the crux of most false doctrine. It has to do with the doctrine of Christ himself. And they will bring on themselves swift destruction. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, the strong desire of uncleanness, usually that's a reference to sexual sin, and despise authority. They are presumptuous self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Titus 1.10 says this, There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching for things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. Let me put it real simple and plain about false teachers. Okay? Sex and money. Why? Would they aspire to some form of spiritual leadership, sex, and money? Think, oh, come on, Dave, don't talk that way. How many times have you heard of pastors 
pastors who may be leading a movement who are guilty of terrible sin. I knew a man who pastored the largest church in Seattle who was considered a a strong leader in many ways. He was convicted of a public lewdness and there were many other sexual sins accused toward him by his own people who did not do anything about it for years. I knew a man on a church staff years ago who had a great talent in, a, in an artistic area and uh, became known that he was living in sexual sin and there was a series of difficulties that went with that. But the result of that, I was sitting at dinner with some people and they were talking about this person and they said, well, you know, sometimes people that are really talented have a really big flaw in their life and you have to put up with the flaw to get the talent. So you're telling me I'm supposed to put up with sin because the ministry, quote-unquote, this person does, we can't live without? There was a pastor of a very large fundamentalist church, he claimed it was the largest, who was found to be having a long-term affair with a woman in his church. Part of his defense was, if I fall, fundamentalism itself will fall. Well, he fell and the Lord took him home. And fundamentalism, that is biblical conservatism, is still going strong. Listen, folks, the primary, the primary qualification of a spiritual leader is their life. I don't like that. Because that means I'm living in a fishbowl. And I am fully aware that I am not perfect. But I'm also fully aware and I embrace the doctrine which is this. You need to be looking at my life. And if my life gets off track, you need to come to me just for my sake. But also for the sake of this body and for your sake. Remember those who rule over you. And there's two verses in this chapter talking about the same thing. It's talking about spiritual leaders. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow Because they are so smart. No, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. You should look at a person's life and say, where is that guy's life going? Now, I understand that there is a sense in which I can't fully judge a man that I'm looking at from the outside, like some of these guys on TV, and and I have no desire to turn you into a critical person. But I also know that if you don't carefully screen what you're hearing and what you're seeing, there is a great risk of sucking up a lot of garbage. Why is the life of the teacher important? As we come back to Matthew 7, it's important for this reason. You're either following someone through the narrow gate into the godly life and on to heaven, or you're following someone on the broad, through the broad gate, on the broad way, that leads to destruction. Now you're following someone. Everybody's following someone. It may be yourself. It may be your parents. It may be some guru you saw on TV. Everybody's following someone. The person we need to be following is Jesus Christ through his word and help, having godly people who help us to know how to do that. I washed my car yesterday. You know, the, the, one of the saddest days I've ever had is when I realized that the water in Ferndale is going to be hard 
and it's going to leave spots on my car when I wash my car. So I can only wash my car when it's raining so that the rainwater washes it off, which seems kind of pointless, or when it's cloudy and kind of, you know, and so I read the weather report and I think, okay, it's going to be clear, but it's kind of overcast today, so I'll get out there and wash the car. So I got out there and washed the car yesterday, and, and as uh, Sue and I drove from place to place, we went to a wedding reception, and we went to another fellowship, and stopped at a couple of places. I looked to make sure it wasn't a gravel parking lot because I am not going to get my car dirty. That dust coming up. You see, nobody told me when I bought my car that a black car is always dirty. My wife's got a silver car. It never looks dirty. Obviously, the cleanliness of my car is not important But the cleanliness of God's truth is. And as much as I want to keep my car clean, I want to keep God's truth clean. Absolutely as pure as I can possibly make it because my life depends on it and your life depends on it. And you should want the same thing. You should want whatever it is you're taking in and running, guiding your life to make sure, you should want that to be absolutely clean and pristine, to be God's truth. Heavenly Father, help us. We are so susceptible to human greatness. We see men and women who, who look like they've got it all together. They look like they have lives that we want, but they teach things that are not your truth. And we have just got to be careful that we don't get fooled. Help us to see the wolves in the sheep clothing. Help us to keep loving people. Help us even to love those false teachers and to pray for them. But keep us, keep us in your way, Father. We're so glad for the, the life change and the freedom that we've gained from you. We want to stay in that. So help us to do that. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.